0: The plan, power, and grace of God are often displayed through human weakness. Jesus requires us to exercise faith and obedience in our relationship with Him. Welcome to the MANA Bible Lessons Podcast. MANA is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. Fellow students, if you'd open your Bibles to John 9, John 9, we've been in the study in John for several months and probably through the rest of the year. At any rate, John uh, told you the reason he wrote the Gospel at the end of the book, he, he, he wrote it to persuade the readers of the Gospel that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God, the eternal God, who came to earth in human flesh, and to persuade them to believe that Jesus is Savior so they can experience eternal Life, the same thing we heard this morning, uh, Psalm 23. From the beginning of his ministry on earth, Jesus has encountered unbelief, or at best, shallow belief. Uh, In John 9, we'll see rebellious, willful, murderous unbelief by the religious leaders against Jesus. In face of incontrovertible evidence, a man born blind has his sight restored by Christ in this chapter. Now, as you recall, John structured his gospel with seven signs. See, Jesus did hundreds and hundreds of miracles. John selected seven that he used to demonstrate the deity of Christ by the supernatural nature of those miracles. This is miracle or sign number six. Number six, the last one will be the raising of Lazarus. Uh, And it relates how Jesus, the light of the world, opens the eyes of a man born blind, and how later on he will open his spiritual eyes as well. And it also demonstrates that Jesus, the light of the world, is always in conflict with the forces of darkness. It demonstrates that when the light of the world shines, those who believe in Christ have their eyes opened, spiritually, so they can see. Those who reject Jesus in unbelief instead of having their eyes opened by the light, are blinded by the light. And they cannot see and will not see. Let's pick up the narrative now in John 9, verse 1. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. Here's the principle. Every person is born spiritually blind. Every person is born spiritually blind. Now, when sin entered the world through Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, what came with sin is sickness, suffering, decay, and death, and they became the new normal. We really have no way of understanding what life on earth is like without the presence of sin, because that's all we've known, in the same way that a fish doesn't know what water is until you take him out of the water, right? So God can heal anyone, anytime, place, but there were very, very few healings recorded in the Old Testament, and very few today. However, when Jesus walked planet Earth for three years, miracles literally exploded. Matthew 12.15 gives us four words that is amazing because Jesus is surrounded by crowds, and Matthew 12.15 says, quote, Jesus was healing all, everyone. Hundreds and hundreds of miracles authenticating Jesus' deity. This should not have been a surprise to the Jews because the Old Testament, specifically Isaiah 42.7, God promised that the Messiah would come to earth and open blind eyes and set prisoners free from the dark dungeons. The New Testament records five separate instances where Jesus opened blind eyes. It's the number one frequent miracle that he performed and only he performed it. Right. So the miracles of Jesus not only demonstrated his deity, they were a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, demonstrating to the Jews who knew the Old Testament that this was their promised Messiah. Now we're not exactly sure when this miracle took place. It could have been immediately after he left the temple. In the previous chapter, you'll see in, in John 8:59 that he hid himself and went out of the temple. could have happened right after that, or it could have happened within a day or two later. Now unfortunately, blindness was a tragic uh, reality uh, in ancient times. Blind people were usually reduced to begging especially at the temple gates, because people entering the temple were devout people. They usually uh, believed that uh, if they gave alms to the poor, that would please the Lord. So they came to the temple to make sacrifices, and they generally were pretty generous. And the biggest crowds generally showed up on the Sabbath. Now, this should not surprise us. Even today, when you look at where panhandlers are, they don't panhandle in the desert. They panhandle where there are lots of people, right? So this man does the same thing. There's probably quite a few beggars at the temple gates. And Jesus is the one who notices this blind beggar. Jesus always notices everything. He knows who's hurting. He knows who's lost. He knows who's broken. Everyone in this life, and certainly everyone in this room, carries scar tissue and brokenness and regrets. And Jesus knows all about our troubles, he will guide till the day is done, there's not a friend like the lowly Jesus, no, not one, you know the song, right? So whatever burdens you have today, be aware that you and I are like this blind man. Put yourself in his shoes as we walk through this lesson today. Psalm 147.3 talks about Messiah, it says, he, Messiah, heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. Now this blind man is literally a picture of the entire human race who is born spiritually blind and cannot see the Savior without divine intervention. Physical blindness requires a healer, but spiritual blindness requires a Savior. This blind man does not heal himself. Jesus takes the initiative in healing both physical and spiritual blindness. So this miracle is a picture of God's divine, loving, merciful grace in action. Verse 2, And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Now, this is the first time Jesus' disciples were mentioned in about three chapters. Actually, ever since Jesus is in Jerusalem, uh, they're not mentioned at this point in time. Jesus is putting most of his time into the crowds and the leaders of Jerusalem, but they have rejected him, and now Jesus is spending most of his time with disciples, preparing them for his departure. He's going to leave planet Earth uh, in about six months. So, Jesus stops by the blind beggar, compassionate, offers assistance, but his disciples try and engage Jesus in a theological discussion, which is utterly interesting. They see the blind man, and they assume that he was born blind due to sin. They don't talk to the man. They talk about the blind man. They talk as though he was absent, and they suggest that he and his parents committed some sin that produced his blindness. This is an interesting lesson. I had a friend, very bright friend. Both he and his wife were blind. And uh, you would go to a restaurant, and the waitress would talk to me about what they wanted or talk to a, a person, some other, you know, whoever was with them. He'd tell me this happened all the time. He said, We go to a restaurant, and whoever's got sight, they ask them what I want. He said, Just because I'm blind doesn't mean I'm stupid. I have a brain. He had an IQ of 140. You know, he's a bright guy. We do that, we don't see always behind the disability, whatever it is. Jesus sees the person inside. He doesn't get distracted with what's on the outside. Good lesson for us. Now, in that era, and even today, some people believe that suffering is the direct consequence of some specific sin in the life of the sufferer. And Job's so-called friends, he had three of them, they claimed to be friends, but with friends like that, you don't need enemies. They believe that and they spend most of the book of job trying to convince job that if only he confessed his unknown sins he would stop suffering of course you read the book you know that's not how it turns out the rabbis taught that there was always a direct correlation between sin and suffering and sometimes that's true you know god did judge miriam moses sister with leprosy when she opposed moses authority that was given to him by god Ananias and Sapphira were struck dead instantly by God when they lied to the Holy Spirit at the first church, first century. Jesus just told a paralyzed man two, three chapters ago, remember the man paralyzed for 38 years, he found him in the temple and he said, quote, do not sin anymore so that nothing worse may happen to you. So apparently his paralysis was a result of sin. So sometimes that's true. However, sometimes that belief that specific sin leads to specific suffering in all cases was taken to extremes. The rabbis believed that based on the story of Esau and Jacob struggling together in Rebekah's womb, you know the story, they were twins, and they were fighting inside Rebekah's womb. Rebekah went prayer and the Holy Spirit told Isaac there are two nations in there fighting with each other based on that story. The rabbi believes that you can sin before you're born, and you will suffer the consequences in your life. And that's, of course, why Jesus' disciples who believed this stuff, they said, was it this man's sin, or was his parents' sin that he should be born blind? But the assumption is somebody sinned, or he wouldn't have been born blind. Now, in ancient times, the primary cause of blindness was gonorrhea. So if mom had gonorrhea, the baby often became blind passing through the birth canal. So we don't know the situation here at all, but the disciples may be hinting that there's got to be sin someplace or this baby would not have been born blind. And that belief came from a misreading of Exodus 25. Exodus 25 says, right, the sins of the fathers will be visited on the children to the third and the fourth generations. That principle really refers to the collective sins of generation, not the sins of an individual. It says fathers and generations, plural. Now it can obviously refer to biological dads, or it can refer to leaders of a given society. When biological fathers or leaders of a given culture allow or encourage sin to propagate and penetrate the family or culture, It does impact future generations significantly, and we can see that today in spades. What you are seeing today did not come from nowhere. It's come from 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years of teaching that truth is not objective, it's subjective. You get to make it up and do whatever you want, anytime you want, and no one else counts except you. Well, when you do that, you have a culture where the wheels come off and you have chaos. However, God says very clearly that each individual is accountable for their own behavior, not someone else's. Ezekiel 18.20, the person who sins shall die. The son will not bear the punishment for the father's iniquity, nor will the father bear the punishment for the son's iniquity. The righteousness of the righteous will be on himself, and the wickedness of the wicked will be on himself. So there is, in God's kingdom, there is individual accountability for belief or unbelief. Now, we do know, the Bible clearly teaches that sickness, suffering, and death are, in fact, consequences of sin entering the world through Adam and Eve's rebellion against God. And because of sin, we live in a broken universe. We live in a universe that is separated from God, separated from the source of life. So as a result of the entire creation being separated from the source of life, it shouldn't surprise us that death, decay, sickness, suffering are epidemic and pervasive. They're everywhere. God told us that. Romans 8.22 tells us that the physical creation groans like childbirth. It's in great pain. The universe who is separated from God because of human sin is in agony until Christ returns and makes all things well. So the truth is, all sin in general does lie behind all evil. But the correlation between specific sin and specific suffering is not always direct and it's not always immediate and quite frankly, it's not always known. So the disciples are jumping off a cliff that is not validated and Jesus deals with that in verse 3. Jesus answered. It was neither that this man sinned, nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Here's the principle. The plan, power, and grace of God are often displayed through human weakness. The plan, power, and grace of God are often displayed through human weakness. So, if you are suffering at this point, Do not jump off the cliff without a parachute that says, I have sinned and therefore I'm suffering. It may be, but it ain't necessarily so. Sin does have consequences, but specific sin does not necessarily lead to specific suffering. You know, there are a great many wretched sinners in this life who are healthy and wealthy. Have you noticed? You read about them all the time. I mean, they are really wretched and they are really rich and some of them are really healthy. And there are many righteous saints who are sick and who are suffering. So you cannot draw conclusions from circumstances. That's why we have the Word of God. It is true that children can suffer on account of their parents' sins. Some parents do abuse drugs or alcohol, and the brains of those babies might be compromised forever, right? Hereditary diseases can be passed down through the generations, and it's certainly true that abusive and neglectful parents leave lifelong trauma in the life of their children. On the other hand, some people suffer, and we have no idea why. Look at Job. He was a righteous man. God said there's no one like him in all the earth. He's blameless and upright, and his life was miserable with suffering, and he had no clue why. That's one of the reasons the book was written. And we don't know why, unless God tells us. But God does know why. Jesus gave us the overarching reason for everything that occurs in all of creation, including suffering, when he said, quote, so that the works of God might be displayed. That is God's rationale for everything he does. He does everything for his own glory. This man was blind for the glory of God. This man was blind so that the power of God would be displayed in him through his healing. And so that Jesus would be clearly seen as the Messiah, God himself, through that healing. Now, if you're in this room and you're breathing or you're listening to my voice somewhere, I know that you have problems and pain and physical, emotional, spiritual, relational brokenness. We all do. Whatever is wrong in your life, God wants to display his glory through that. Whatever's wrong in your life, God is not limited by what's broken in our life. He wants to work through that and demonstrate to a watching world that Jesus Christ is the Savior and Lord of all things. Sometimes God is most glorified when he doesn't fix our problems on our schedule. There are problems you and I have that God will fix in this life. And there are problems you have that God will fix when you get to heaven and not before. I didn't say you were going to like it. I don't like it either. I'd much rather have him heal me now or take me home. Right? Wouldn't that be sweet? But God doesn't operate on our schedule. Sometimes he's most glorified when he lets us struggle with the problem, and he teaches us to depend on his power, his promises, his presence, so we will experience his peace in the middle of the storm. God says to us, just like he said to Paul in 2 Corinthians 12.9, he, God, has said to me, Paul, quote, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Paul says, most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me, verse 10, for when I am weak, then I am strong. When we run out of human solutions for our troubles and trials, then we stop trusting ourselves and we depend completely on God's plan, God's power, and God's grace. Only when I'm weak in myself will I be strong in Him. Only when I stop depending on myself will I completely depend on Him and his supernatural power works through my weakness. See, I like the idea of God's supernatural power working through me. Paul says it doesn't happen unless you're weak in yourself and you stop trusting your own capacity to fix things and depend completely and fully on the Lord. Verse 4. Jesus says to the disciples, We must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no man can work. When I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Here's the principle. Since life is short, don't delay telling people about Jesus. Since life is short, don't delay telling people about Jesus. Now, Jesus has invited, when Jesus uses the word we, he's talking about you and me. He's invited us and commanded us to work with him in accomplishing his father's work. Jesus' work and our work is the same. Make disciples of all the nations. By the way, we, we often think of making disciples of all the nations as somewhere over there. And I'm a huge believer in foreign missions. But making disciples of all the nations includes our family, our friends, our neighbors, our co-workers, our golfing partners, our bunko buddies. Whoever God puts in our path is people that need to know about Jesus and become disciples of Jesus. Ephesians 2 said, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand so that she should walk in them. God has a written job description for your life. You didn't show up by accident, and your life is not your own. If you belong to Jesus, you're bought with a price. He created you, but He also created the good works He wanted you to do before you were born. Before the foundations of the world... He called you to himself and he created the good works that he wants you to do. His job description for you was written in eternity past. And since tomorrow is not guaranteed, Jesus said, work today because tomorrow is not guaranteed. It says we must work. This this is compulsion. This is not optionality. He says, work as long as it is day. Now, we don't understand this because we have this thing called electricity. Before electricity showed up, daylight was precious. It was the only time you could get anything done was when it was light enough to see. That's when you worked, that's when you got everything done, really, because when the sun went down, you had to stop working. Day is a metaphor for opportunity. There is a God-ordained time when work is to be done while it is day, which means while you have life, while you have breath. When you stop breathing, opportunity is gone. There's no farming proverb that says, make hay when the sun shines, make haste when it doesn't, right? Proverb, Ephesians 5.16, Paul is talking, the Holy Spirit's talking through Paul says, make the most of your time because the days are evil. Well, if we look around and we see the days, we should not be sitting around. We should be getting this thing in overdrive. The night is coming. The end of life is coming. Night is a metaphor for death here. Stop wasting your life on that which has no eternal value because life is short. Jesus said, while I'm in the world, he was only in the world functioning as ministry for three years, and he only has 180 days to go roughly before the cross. So his time in the world was a limited time frame. He was going back to the Father. He says, while I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. So, He's going to bring this man physical light and sight in a few minutes so he can see the world, but the bigger picture is later on he's going to give this man spiritual light and sight so he can see God and have a relationship with him for all eternity. Verse 6, when Jesus had said this, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle and applied the clay to his eyes and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went away and washed and came back seeing. Is not that an understatement? Here's the principle. Jesus requires us to exercise faith and obedience in our relationship with him. Jesus requires us to exercise faith and obedience in our relationship with him. So Jesus uses saliva and dirt to make mud to anoint this man's eyes and And it's interesting, in the five five different times Jesus opens people's eyes, he uses a different method every time. Sometimes he'll speak, sometimes he'll touch. What he's saying is, don't get hung up on the methodology. There's no magic in how Jesus opens eyes. It's his supernatural power that's opening him. I want you to think like the blind man. You're sitting there, you've been there for years begging. That's all you can do. And you hear these people talking, and they're saying something about the works of God. And this guy spits. Well, he doesn't spit on you, fortunately. He spits on the ground. And all of a sudden, he puts this mud on your eyes and tells you to go and wash in the pool of Siloam. And you see nothing. You have no idea who all is there. Would you think it might be a little confusing? You know, This mud is not medicinal, but it sure put his faith to the test. This man called Jesus tells him to go and wash his eyes at the pool of Siloam and doesn't promise him a thing. He doesn't say, If you wash, you will be healed. He doesn't say that. He had just heard Jesus say, This man is born blind that the works of God might be manifested or displayed in him, and then he spits. Is that a work of God? I mean, you're a blind man. We know the end of the story. He doesn't know the end of the story. This man has to walk by faith. Reminds us of Naaman. Remember, Naaman is the bandito from Syria who invades Israel during the time of Elisha, and he's got leprosy. And Elisha says, you know, go wash in the muddy Jordan River seven times. Dip yourself seven times, you're going to be healed. At least he promised him he was going to be healed if he did it. This guy's promised nothing. But the Holy Spirit lit a spark of faith in this guy's heart, and he obeyed. He did exactly what Jesus commanded him. The Pool of Siloam is translated sent. I'll tell you why that is. This is a play on words. Jesus, who is sent by God, sent this man to the pool called Sent, right? Now, the Pool of Siloam and the tunnel that fed it was hewn out about 700 BC by Hezekiah. 700 feet tunnel through solid rock from the Gihon Spring, which is outside the walls of Jerusalem, To the Pool of Siloam inside the walls of Jerusalem. They built it to secure a water supply for the city, because if it was ever sieged and your water supply is outside the city, it didn't take a rocket scientist to figure out. They shut your water supply off, it's not going to be very long before you surrender, so this was considered almost a wonder of the ancient world that Hezekiah was able to hew this tunnel through solid rock for 770 some odd feet, they had crews working from both ends. And they met in the middle and secured a source of water supply. I've walked in this tunnel, it's absolutely fascinating. It doesn't matter how hot it is outside, it's nice and cool in there, but if you're claustrophobic, you might want to think about it, right? So Hezekiah's tunnel sent the water to the spring of Gion, to the pool of Siloam, which was located in southeast Jerusalem, and that's where Jesus sent the man to go wash his eyes. Now, In that era and in this era, water is life. No water, no life. Water is also cleansing. I haven't figured out a way to run the dishwasher without water. Both of which were celebrated during the Feast of Tabernacles, which has just finished. Remember, this Feast of Tabernacles celebrated how God brought water for Israel in the wilderness out of a rock. And Jesus, at the time they were pouring the water out during the ceremony, he gave his great invitation for salvation. He said, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Jesus says, I am the never-ending supply of living water, eternal life, for all who admit their need and come to me by faith. In this particular case, the message is, if the spiritually blind wash in Jesus, who is sent by God, they will receive their sight, which is precisely what happened to this man, verse 8. Therefore, the neighbors and those who previously saw him as a beggar were saying, is not this the one who used to sit and beg? Others were saying, this is he. Still others were saying, no, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the one. So they were saying to him, how then were your eyes opened? He answered, the man who is called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went away and washed, and I received sight. And they said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. We never ask a blind man for directions. Of course he's not going to (laughs) know. I never saw him, right? I mean, you know, how am I going to know where he is, right? Yeah. So the people who knew the blind man the best, the people who saw him begging, his acquaintances, his neighbors, they can't believe that he can now see. They can't believe it so much that some of them who've known him for years and years and years doubt that it's the same guy. And he says, I'm the guy. I was blind, now I see. By the way, that's true of some people who come to Christ. Some people who come to Christ, their lives are changed so dramatically, their friends can't believe they're the same person. You used to be a schmuck, and now you're a reasonable human being. What happened? Yeah, the Holy Spirit came in and Washed the sin away, right? This man had been a beggar by necessity. By the way, almost everybody with disabilities in that era was a beggar because there was no gainful employment for someone who couldn't see. And as you're going to find out, this guy's parents were lame, literally lame. They didn't provide any care for him at all. Not good parents. His friends asked him, how did you come to see? He just told them the facts. Jesus made clay, anointed my eyes, commanded me to wash. I went, I washed, I see. Now, his view of Jesus right now is that he's simply a man. The man Jesus told me to do X. So he gave his testimony, just very simple, here's my experience. That's a good lesson for us. You don't have to be a theological heavyweight to share your faith. You simply tell your story, what Jesus has done in my life, how Jesus has changed my life. That's what this guy's doing. Now, his neighbors want to know where Jesus is, but the man doesn't know because it's almost a private miracle. You know, you'll notice that there's no crowd that follows this guy to the pool of Siloam to watch him wash his face, right? Because Jesus didn't tell him he was going to see. There was no promise miracle, there was just obedience. Go do what I say, without a promise of the outcome. And the man was blind, which means he couldn't identify Jesus, at least not by sight. And Jesus never went with him to the pool. He just sent him to the pool of Siloam. So by the time he saw he was at the pool of Siloam, Jesus was gone. That was intentional. The Jews had been trying to kill Jesus, and so he kept a very, very low profile. It's clear here that Jesus wasn't promoting himself. This is not all about him. He was simply doing the works that his father told him to do. Jesus was obedient. See, we're like this blind man. Sin has blinded us before Christ and reduced us to what? Begging. Begging. Our sight and our freedom depended on Christ finding us. Jesus invites us and commands us to what? Exercise faith in believing him. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, what? You will be saved, right? That is empowered through the Holy Spirit. And when this man trusted and obeyed Jesus in something very simple, go and wash, Jesus gave him sight. Some people reject Christ because they are convinced it's too easy. All I need to do is surrender my life, admit I'm a sinner, and confess my sins and ask him to forgive me. That's correct. You do not earn it. It's what he's already done on the cross. Verse 13. They brought to the Pharisees the man who was formerly blind. Now it was the Sabbath on the day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. You can underline that because that's a very significant verse. Then the Pharisees also were asking him again how he received his sight. And he said to them, he applied clay to my eyes and I washed and I see. Therefore, some of the Pharisees were saying, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, how can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said to the blind man again, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? And he said, he is a prophet. Here's the principle. Jesus is Lord regardless of people's opinions about him. Jesus is Lord regardless of people's opinions about him. So this is an extraordinary miracle. And the Pharisees disagree with each other about Jesus. And the neighbors do as well. The neighbors disagree to the point where they say, we don't understand this. Let's take this man to the religious authorities. Now, you have to understand, in that era, the scribes and Pharisees were not only the religious authorities, they were legal authorities. So religion and politics were one. Of course, they were under the Roman umbrella at that point in time. So the religious leaders exerted enormous influence in that culture. They probably bought him to this group so they wouldn't get into trouble. It seems as though there's a group of Pharisees here that are conducting an unofficial, but nonetheless a very influential investigation into this event. They want to hear firsthand testimony from this man, how he had received his sight, and he told them simply and directly. And the Pharisees immediately try and discredit the miracle By claiming that this man, they're talking about Jesus, this man Jesus is not from God because Jesus did not keep the Sabbath rules. Our Sabbath rules. And it's interesting, they refuse to use the name Jesus. They say, this man. Well, Jesus means what? Savior, Yeshua. Savior. They refuse to use the name Savior. They say, this man. Can't use his name. Healing on the Sabbath was considered working on the Sabbath, which was prohibited by the fourth commandment, right? Keep the Sabbath day holy. Now, the Jewish religious leaders over the last 400 years have added hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of man-made rules on top of the Mosaic law. And they taught that these man-made traditions, these man-made rules were equivalent to the Mosaic law. And their, de- their definition of working on the Sabbath went far beyond God's definition of working that he gave them in the, in the Mosaic law. For example, the Pharisees taught that you could spit on a rock, but not on the ground. Because if the saliva rolled in the dirt, you would have made mud, and that was considered working on the Sabbath. Making clay also violated the rule against kneading, like kneading bread dough, you know, kneading bread dough. So Jesus was working because he made mud from spit and dust, right? And that was working. Placing clay on the eyes violated the rule about anointing. You were prohibited from anointing on the Sabbath. As a matter of fact, it was forbidden to heal on the Sabbath unless it was required to save someone's life. So, if you wake up on the Sabbath with a splitting migraine, you have to wait till the next day because it's not considered life-threatening. Now, if you die from it, ah, so sorry, so sorry, right? But you could not treat somebody unless it was considered life-threatening. And, of course, my question is, how would you know until after the fact, right? I mean, this migraine is killing me. It might be a stroke, for heaven's sakes, right? So... There's two groups of Pharisees here that are doing this investigation. Group A and Group B. Group A's major premise is our rules are equal to God's law. Our man-made rules are equal to God's law. Minor premise. Jesus violated our rules. Conclusion. Because Jesus violated our rules and our rules are equal to God's law, Jesus violated God's law. And therefore, he is a sinner, and he's not from God. Now, group B takes a little different tact. Group B's major premise is, only God can open blind eyes. Minor premise. Jesus opened blind eyes. Conclusion. Therefore, Jesus is from God. Right? Now, group A begins with a very false premise. Here's their premise. Everyone who is from God keeps our rules. And you know there are very religious people and very religious churches and very religious denominations who absolutely believe that. Who's getting to heaven? Us. And only us. Because we alone have the right rules and the formula and the human legal, legal, blah, 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 blah. And if you live like us, you get to heaven. If you don't, you ain't getting in. Because we've got the inside track to God. So the Pharisees have now set themselves up as the mediator, the gatekeeper between God and people. If you want to get to God, you have to keep the Pharisees' rules. Because Jesus didn't keep their rules, he's not from God. Now the vast majority of the Jewish people were under the religious thumbs of the Pharisees, and as long as they believed that the Pharisees had the key to heaven, which we used to believe, Roman Catholics used to believe the Pope had the key to heaven. You gave that political, religious party tremendous power, tremendous wealth. And Jesus had been calling them out on it. That's one of the reasons they wanted them dead, because he said, you don't come to the Father except through me. I am alone the mediator. Human rule-keeping is not the mediator. Now, Group B, they begin with the evidence. we got a blind guy who can see, and they work backwards. However, it's important to understand, just because someone does miracles does not prove they're from God. Satan counterfeits miracles all the time. See, the problem is the Pharisees had the Sabbath all backwards. God gave Sabbath to man and woman for rest and for worship, right? However, there were hundreds of rules And the Pharisees had made the Sabbath day the most miserable day of the week. When I was a kid, I hated Sundays. Couldn't read the cartoons. Couldn't go swimming. Sure couldn't go hunting. Couldn't go fishing. Actually, didn't even read the paper until we got back from church. I mean, we had these rules, right? For all the good reasons, because it was a holy day. It was a set-apart day. You know, you had to take a nap on the afternoon of Sunday, right? I'm eight years old. I got a nap. No, you got a nap, Mom and Dad. I don't need to nap. Right, whatever. You know what I'm talking about. Some of you that grew up in that tradition, right? It's a really bad thing when the Sabbath day is the most miserable day of the week because of the rules. It was all about what you could not do, right? Contrast to that, Jesus often worked on the Sabbath, on purpose, doing miracles, to demonstrate that he, and not the Pharisees, was Lord of the Sabbath. He said in John 5.17, he said, my father is working till now, and I myself am working. By the way, if God the Father stops working, the universe goes poof. He needs to stop, keep working, right? Mark Mark 2.27, Jesus is talking. He says, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Consequently, the Son of Man, Jesus, is Lord even of the Sabbath. So the Pharisees used their Sabbath day rules to keep people enslaved. Jesus healed people on the Sabbath to set them free from sickness, from illness, and ultimately to set them free from sin and death. Jesus is clearly showing us that those who love the darkness oppose Jesus' the light, and those who oppose Jesus bring down God's judgment on themselves. We're going to see that in spades toward the end of this chapter. So this group of Pharisees is very perplexed and they're divided among themselves. So they ask the blind man, this is remarkable. What do you say about him since he opened your eyes? Now you're talking about a group of theological PhDs who are asking a blind, illiterate what he thinks about it. They must have been desperate because blind people were forbidden to enter the synagogue. They were considered to have sinned, else they wouldn't be blind. So they regarded them with disdain and contempt. It's interesting that they say this, quote, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? They're acknowledging that Jesus did open this guy's eyes. They don't like it, but they acknowledge it. And the blind man, his faith is growing. What did he say a couple verses ago? Jesus, the man, Jesus. Now he says, Jesus is a prophet. He's someone sent by God. How did the Jews respond to that? Verse 18. The Jews then did not believe it of him that he had been blind and had received sight until they called the parents of the very one who had received his sight and questioned them, saying, Is this your son who you say was born blind? Then how does he now see? His parents answered them and said, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know. Or who opened his eyes, we do not know. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. For this reason, his parents said, he is of age. Pass. Ask him. Here's the principle. When your faith is in God alone, you will not fear human judgment. When your faith is in God alone, you will not fear human judgment. If your faith is in God and yourself, you will fear human judgment, right? So the Pharisees have heard from the man, they've heard of him his acquaintances, and yet they rejected both their testimonies. So their major assumption is Jesus is not from God because he broke our Sabbath rules and therefore he could not have done this miracle. Therefore, this miracle did not happen. The man who now sees must not have been born blind. We've been conned. This guy could always see. We're going to find out. We're going to ask the parents. So they bring the parents in. They interrogate him. And these parents are really lame. You do not want parents like this. They acknowledge that, yes, this is our son. And yes, that he's born blind. And yes, now that he sees. So his parents acknowledge it a genuine miracle. He was born blind. He's our son. We've known him all his life. He now sees. But they claim not to know how he came to see, which was absolutely not true. It was a lie. Everybody knew that Jesus had healed their son. It was all over town, right? This was a big deal. However, they feared man more than God. So they threw their son under the Pharisee bus and said, Ask him. He's of age. He'll speak for himself. See, they were afraid to acknowledge that Jesus actually healed their son because if that was the case, then Jesus was, in fact, God, just like he'd claimed. And the Pharisees had already agreed together. Anyone who acknowledges that Jesus was the Messiah is going to get excommunicated from the local synagogue. That was not a small problem. That was a life-changing problem because if you got kicked out of the local synagogue, you lost your family. They couldn't associate with you. You lost your friends. They couldn't either. You lost your job. No one would hire a reprobate that got excommunicated. You lost your livelihood. You lost your whole way of life. People wouldn't even talk to you in the streets. You were considered under the cloud and kicked out because of your lack of compliance with the Pharisees' rule system. Even worse, people believe that if the Pharisees booted you out of the synagogue, God was going to close the gates of heaven and lock them and shut you out as well. People believed that the Pharisees had the power of life and death eternally, right? That is hell. And the Pharisees used this fear of hell to intimidate people into following their rules. And Jesus took this on head on and said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You don't get to heaven through any other way through me, and anybody can come. And the Pharisees' power base of authority and money, they made a lot of money doing this, was struck down, and they wanted Jesus dead. You know, this fearing man, fearing humans versus fearing God, is epidemic in our culture. We saw this during the pandemic for sure. People try to intimidate other people into following the opinion of the experts, the crowd, the government, or themselves, rather than following God's word. You know, none of us should be that impressed with our own opinion. Seriously, we should view our own opinion with a great deal of skepticism. We should be willing to say, maybe I don't have it figured out. What? does God say, not what humans say? Solomon warned us about this, Proverbs 29, 25. The fear of man brings the snare, but he who trusts in the Lord will be exalted or be safe. Now, a snare is a trap. If you fear humans, you're going to be in a trap. Here's the hard truth. I don't like what I'm going to say, but it is true. You always obey the one you fear the most. If you fear rejection from humans, you will never say or do anything that will cause you to be rejected by the people whose opinion you value. If you fear human opinion, you will always go along with the crowd because you can't handle their rejection. The fear of man is a trap because man is a false god. They're not God. They will die like you. Peter Peter and John told the Pharisees what? We must obey God rather than people. Here's our problem. We fear humans because we value their goodwill more than we fear God and value His goodwill. If we really truly feared God above all else, respected Him, loved Him, valued his opinion more than humans, we would be less, less uh, intimidated by human opinion. Now, I'm not saying go out and behave nasty just so you can prove you don't care about humans, right? We do represent Jesus. But at the end of the day, if human opinion disagrees with God's opinion, you've got a decision to make. Where's your primary loyalty? Because the heat is going to get turned up in the coming decades, in the coming months, coming years, I promise you. Why can we say this? Well, Hebrews 13:6 gives us a promise. The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? Jesus said, you don't fear those who can just kill the body. After they kill the body, what else can they do? He said, you want to fear? Fear the one who can kill the body and kill your soul and hell. Fear him. Amen. Right? So the fear of the Lord is not a terror, it is a holy respect a desire to honor the one who laid down his life for us and who created us in the first place. Now, we live in a culture where the wheels are coming off. The moral wheels are coming off. We live in a decaying society, and those who belong to Jesus need to supremely value what God says and not what the culture says. Fifty years ago, God and the culture were sort of in alignment. Kind of soared in the same direction. Boy, howdy, that is not the case today. We are moving in dramatically different directions, and we as believers need to know where our loyalty is. Because God promises the book of Daniel to strongly support those whose heart is completely his. And we need to make sure that's the case. Okay, let me review, and then uh, Tom will come up and do prayer and praise. Point one, every person is born spiritually blind. And many times the ones who are the most blind are the ones who say, I can see, I can see, I got this. No, you're blind without the Holy Spirit. Number two, the plan, power, and grace of God are often displayed through human weakness. You know what that means? We in this room are beautiful candidates for the power of God to work through because we're weak, right? We're broken, but God works through human weakness. Number three. Since this life is short, don't delay telling people about Jesus. It's not how much time you have on the planet. You don't know how much time they have. And it could be over like that. Number four, Jesus requires us to exercise faith and obedience in our relationship with him. God told this man, go wash. Didn't promise him what was going to happen. He went and washed. Jesus will tell you, the Holy Spirit will tell you through his word this week, something he wants you to do, and he probably won't promise you an outcome. When you hear the word of the Lord, you know, you have your quiet time, you're reading, and the Holy Spirit goes, that's for you, baby. That means you need to do it, right? Number five, Jesus is Lord regardless of people's opinions about him. The Pharisees said this about Jesus. The second group said this about Jesus. The neighbor said this about Jesus. The man said this about Jesus. The reality, human opinion is irrelevant. What does God say about his son? He's Lord. He's deity, second member of the Trinity. And lastly, when your faith is in God alone, you will not fear human judgment. And humans are extraordinarily good at wanting to be in the tribe. You know, I need, my group has to accept me. Well, folks, the reality is the only one that has authority over life and death in your life is the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's his opinion and his opinion only that matters at the end of the day. Next week is one of the most hot conversations in the New Testament. This blind man takes on the Pharisees and makes monkeys out of them. It is a remarkable, remarkable set of conversations. Okay. I love you all. Now that you know. Yeah. Do.